Episode 6 Solitaire Robert Dagan stood listening. That's what he'd been doing for the past ten minutes, leaning on the rail of the staircase outside the ballroom, listening to the wind. He wondered how long the lights would stay on. The city of New Orleans had only had three centuries to get ready for this hurricane, so needless to say, they were unprepared. Well, he was prepared. He began to climb the steps. Midway up, he paused to look at the wall. The water was going to rise. Would the mural be destroyed? There was no way to protect it. Ascending from the first floor to the second was a pantheon of demons and angels painted with a realism that made it feel as though they were reaching out from another dimension. At the bottom was the Lord of Chaos in all his resplendent insanity, and at the top, Dagan refused to name that one. Though he had objected strenuously, the artist had insisted on rendering a particular god at the pinnacle of the masterpiece. And this artist was the only person in the world who did exactly what he pleased, no matter what Dagon wanted. Not even Ellie had such supreme freedom. In fact, most of the time, this aggravating individual displayed irritation at Dagon's presence, much less his preferences. And there was no reasoning with him. You might as well reason with a rock. So whatever appeared in his brain, that's what would appear on a surface. And wherever that surface was, that's where the paint would be applied. It might be the wall of the grand staircase, or every toilet seat in the mansion. But what greatness! It was almost as though he could see into another world. The patrons loved it. They loved him. Fan clubs came for no other reason than to stare in awe at this mural, and then go visit each restroom, where they would spend a lot of time in the stalls. Every restroom was equipped with a movable, two-foot, tubular mirror, this was needed to view the toilet seat art. For some inexplicable reason, the artist had painted the seats in a centuries-old mystery style. To understand what he had painted, you had to suspend the tubular mirror in the hole above the water. Only as you looked in the mirror did the painting make any sense. The extent of the nightmare this had created within the club was difficult to imagine. On busy evenings, the line into the women's room extended a block down the street. And some patrons objected to anyone profaning the masterpieces by sitting on them, which had led to some embarrassing confrontations. First-time visitors always asked the same questions, none of which the artist could answer. Consequently, either Dagan or Ellie or someone on staff had to answer for him. Why toilet seats? Was it a statement about the ephemeral nature of human creativity or the commercialization of art? Uh, no, the artist just had a strange penchant for circles and liked toilet seats because they were round. Sometimes he would sit on them for hours. Why had he chosen to paint some of the seats with the face of Dagon, as though he were hanging open-mouthed looking up from a watery hell, while most of the seats depicted scenes so lovely they could be in heaven? Whenever the artist was angry with you, you found yourself immortalized on a toilet seat, and he was angry with Dagon most of the time. Such answers always elicited shocked disbelief. Then Dagan would admit to the visitors that the toilet seat series had been a source of deep conflict, and this was why he appeared on so many of them. The problem was that, at the beginning, it was supposed to be a single toilet seat. However, the vision had expanded to every toilet seat in the whole building. When he had run out of seats, the artist had been extremely frustrated because Dagan had refused to build more restrooms so he could continue. 
To one passionate group, Dagan had made the mistake of announcing that the artist's next work would be a urinal series, which meant, sadly, that it would not be open to the female patrons. He told them it was a joke, but no one had laughed. The next day, a critic from the Dallas Morning News had called wanting to know when the new series would begin and what medium would be chosen to counter the acidic effects of urine. After that had come a feverish series of emails from women artists of America demanding that all his restrooms be gender-neutral. He had cursed himself. The paintings in the mansion had been featured in art magazines around the world. Dealers clamored to sell just one restroom masterpiece. But the artist refused to allow any to leave the building. Consequently, every year people were arrested trying to steal them. Fortunately, toilet seats were hard to conceal. The art world clamored for him to paint on canvas, paper, wood, glass, anything that could be moved and hung and sold for vast amounts of money. However, he cared not one whit for any of it. He had chosen Dagon's illusion as his artistic home, and his only concern was trying to make it beautiful, by his definition. But what would be left when the hurricane had passed? During the renovation of Marin House, the second floor had been transformed into an exclusive dinner club. Normally on a night like this, the rooms would glisten with candle glow. Antique tables draped with embroidered linens would gleam with crystal and silver, but tonight the rooms were dark and empty. Walking through the shadows, Dagan made his way to the Victorian bar that was his pride. Bought from a dealer in England who had acquired it from a member of the royal family, it was a tower of oak and mirrors and brass. Switching on a light, he bent down and opened a locked cabinet. From inside, he removed a personalized rocks tumbler and a bottle of Johnny Walker Blue, gifts from a president after he had performed at the White House. Pouring two fingers neat, he sipped and looked around. On the walls hung half a dozen garish posters that he had insisted not be packed away. If they drowned, it was perfectly all right with him. Every image was a gaseous inflation of his ego, a glittering, gleaming load of framed flatulence. He would have burned them long ago, but Elliot insisted that they were part of the corporate image. The two closest to the bar were his least favorites. In one, he was chained in a pit of cobras that writhed around his body. A large male serpent sat on his chest with its tongue flickering. Can the amazing Dagon escape the pit of cobras? Find out Thursday at 8 on CBS. The answer to that question had almost been no. The drug that was supposed to make the snake sweetly passive had worn off 15 seconds too soon. He would never try that again. Neither would the Indian herpetologist, whom he had almost strangled. In the second poster, Dagon was strapped in a gas chamber with the fumes rising. Can the amazing Dagon escape the chamber of death? Find out Sunday at 8 on CBS. The conclusion of that stunt had not been humorous. A saboteur from one of his competitors had filled the chamber with sulfur hexafluoride. It wasn't dangerous, but the effects were the opposite of helium. It removed all high tones from your voice. He had come out speaking to the live television audience in a weird, inhuman rumble, which many born-again Christians, he called them backs, had attributed to demons, and he couldn't tell the truth without blowing the secret. In the end, it had worked to his advantage. His viewership had grown a thousandfold because back bloggers had called for a boycott after a TV evangelist had proclaimed him the Antichrist. Okay, not exactly the Antichrist, but an excellent model for him. 
His production team had wanted him to suck the gas again, then be exorcised by a Roman Catholic priest as part of a prime-time special during sweeps. Can the amazing Dagon escape the powers of darkness? Find out Wednesday at 8 on CBS. Well, that's where he had drawn the line. Even a grand charlatan had to live by some kind of ethics, and he knew far too much about the real powers of darkness to mock them. They didn't take kindly to that sort of thing. Anyway, that was how the lexicon of possession had entered the Dagon myth, through a lungful of gas. Suddenly he was so depressed that he could barely lift his drink. All the dark, cynical humor vanished. This kind of black despair had come over him before, but never with such intensity. So work the system. Robert Dagon had discovered a secret about despair. When it was crushing the life out of him, he had learned to depend on a system. Knowing that tonight he would face terrible emotions, he had laid out a simple plan that called for one positive action at a time, and in taking those small steps, strength would return. His system involved playing cards. Though his mind was locked in a fog of despair, from the cabinet he removed a boxed deck. On the cover was the symbol of Dagon's illusion, a broken labyrinth. Opening it, he dumped the cards into his hand and slowly riffled through them. Cool, smooth pasteboards. Just to touch them took him back to his past. As a teenager, he would spend hours shuffling, dealing from the bottom, dealing seconds, dealing from anywhere, double shuffling with a deck in each hand. For a while, he had been a gambling monster, an expert cheat who won every game. First step. Take out the cards and feel them. Second step. Shuffle. With a touch of a master, he began shuffling. Third step. Do it faster. With lightning speed, over and over, he shuffled in half a dozen different ways. Fourth step. Stop shuffling and look at them. Really look. Such beautiful cards. His deck. His creation. Look at the faces on the cards one by one. Ostensibly, creation of this deck had been a business venture. Using the paintings on the staircase wall, he had developed what he called the Angel Progression. Fifty-two cards of good and evil to let you play the ultimate game. They were the only copies from the mural that the artist had ever allowed. Dagan surmised that he had permitted it because he liked to play with them. Not games, the artist had no understanding of games, just play. Sail them one by one through the air from the top of the staircase and watch them flutter to the floor. If the club was full, so much the better. They would land on people's heads, which brought him the greatest glee. Fifth step. The spiritual test. After a last quick overhand shuffle, he ribbon-spread the cards face up on the bar. Pausing, he took another sip of scotch and stared at them. Then, with a single flip, he turned the ribbon spread face down. Closing his eyes, he moved his right hand back and forth above it, finally stabbing with his finger onto a random card. This he pulled from the spread and turned face up. Again. It had happened again. After an honest shuffle and a random selection, out of the whole spread, one card had been chosen. The King of Spades. The Lord of Chaos. One more thing to do. With a flip, he turned the remaining cards face up. The rest of the deck was now blank. The faces, the pips, all had vanished as though they had never been printed. 
this little miracle of magic had happened five times before. Unseen forces taking control, wanting him to know they were present. And always when the little miracle had occurred, it had been followed by ugly and dangerous attacks. The cards were their way of laughing at him, letting him know that they were here and there was nothing he could do about it. But it didn't have the effect that they expected. His despair vanished. Tearing up the Lord of Chaos, he let the pieces dribble to the floor and walked away. The battle was on.